Broadcasting from high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, this is KZMU News. I'm Emily Arnson. On the program today, we have the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories from the Moab area. Today, we cover the ongoing drama over the new development on Cane Creek Boulevard. We also talk about the airport's new service to Phoenix, the local OHV community, and the history of the Old Spanish Trail in Moab. Sophia Fisher of the Times Independent starts off with updates about the mysterious origins of the Cane Creek Development's zoning code. We've mentioned this in a couple articles before, but this week I actually did a a bit more of a deep dive into uh, the zoning of about 180 acres of land down Cane Creek Boulevard, where a new development is starting to take shape. Yeah, so this is just an ongoing saga, the zoning fiasco of Cane Creek Boulevard. So basically what happened, from my understanding, is in the 90s, a small parcel of land in this property was supposed to be rezoned for campgrounds, and that maybe the map has been redrawn or something is not lining up with the amount of land that was rezoned in the 90s and the amount of land that is zoned for highway commercial today. Correct. And I would say several things are not lining up. It's there. It seems like there are almost like four or five different descriptions or um, mentions of what this rezone was supposed to be and what it turned into. And a lot of them don't line up with each other. So it's pretty confusing. Yeah. So have you talked to anyone at the county about whether they're looking into this or what they found. Yeah, Mallory Nassau, who is the Grand County Commission Administrator, uh, acknowledged a discrepancy between the, the legal description and what's found on the online zoning map. Um, she said the county is looking into this and is trying to do a really thorough search for historical records to try to understand how the zoning may have essentially changed accidentally or potentially been altered um, since 1992 when this rezone was approved. Yeah, so what are some of the biggest differences between the original proposal for the rezone and what's going on today? Yeah, some of the biggest differences are, um, it seems like Charlie and Lucy Nelson, who owned the land at this time in 1992, uh, according to the minutes from several planning commission and, and county commission meetings back then, uh, it appeared that they were presenting a rezone request for just 10 acres of their land, um, of their much bigger holdings along Cane Creek Boulevard. Uh, however, the ordinance that was actually signed in 1992, and we certainly you know, have access to that, that describes a parcel of land that's more like 115, 116 acres, so more than 10 times the amount that um, was described in those meeting minutes. You know, at the same time, the Nelsons also submitted a formal rezone request, and that describes a much larger amount of land as well. I wasn't able to calculate the exact acreage, but it seemed quite large, much more than 10 acres, I believe. Um, And then if you actually, you know, looked at the online zoning map, which I should say that the zoning layer has actually uh, been removed on that recently, but I looked at that a few weeks ago and, and that seemed to show more like 120, 130 acres zoned highway commercial. So there's a couple different numbers kind of being thrown around here. Okay. And so what could that mean potentially if it is found that a lot less of this land should have been zoned for highway commercial. Yeah, I'm not sure about the exact legal ramifications, but I do know that this Cane Creek development has been vested for several years now. I think it vested in 2021, which means they filed a lot of preliminary planning documents, and it basically means that the county can't go back and change the land use code from what it was when they vested. So in my understanding, you know, whatever... Um, it was when they vested, you know, whether or not that complied with the 1992 ordinance, it seems like they'd be kind of set to continue that. And um, it could be an issue if the county were to try to say retract that. Um, But still remains to be seen. And I I believe the county attorney, Stephen Stocks, has been drawn into the conversation as well. Yeah, that's interesting. So even if this mistake had been made, even if it is 
discovered that this was a mistake because it was vested as a certain amount of acreage for highway commercial zoning. It's like grandfathered in almost. That would be my guess. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Was there anything else you wanted to mention about this? Yeah, a few interesting things. I think one of the biggest differences that I saw between the 1992 ordinance and then what appeared on the, you know, on the modern map is that a lot of the land right next to the river, so on the west side of Cane Creek Boulevard, uh, was excluded from this zone change uh, in the ordinance in 1992. But per the modern map, most of it, not all, but most of it is considered highway commercial. So that's a big difference I think folks should keep an eye on. Um, Interestingly, too, you know, I looked back in the TI archives and found almost no mention of this rezone from the 1990s. I looked like in a decade-long swath. Um, But the local Channel 6 news broadcast at the time, which was a local uh, TV news show, I was able to access some tapes through Jim Mattingly, who's in the process of digitizing and making publicly available this huge swath of, of Moab history. And two broadcasts from 1992 did mention this rezone. I got to watch them with Jim. Uh, shout out to him for letting me do that. And interestingly, both of those broadcasts described the uh, parcel of land being rezoned as at the mouth or the entrance of Pritchett Canyon, which is all the way in the southern end of this property. So that's just another interesting tidbit. You know, they didn't mention specific acreages, but that is just like another piece in the puzzle here. Yeah. What was the story about in terms of like, what were they saying about the rezone? Yeah, absolutely. It was presented as being a rezone um, for a camp park or a campground. Um, It was very brief, just a minute or two. But Tom Reese, uh, or someone who Jim Mattingly identified as Tom Reese, who was the chair of the Planning Commission at that time, he was interviewed very briefly about this rezone. And he said that, at least on the Planning Commission side, there was little to no concern about the idea of a campground or a camp park, but there was concern about the broadness of this zone, which was C3 at the time, which is, you know, a conversation conversational point that we're seeing nowadays as well. So the planning commission and, and several citizens who attended at the time were worried that this rezone gave way too broad of a land use potential to these sensitive lands um, along the Colorado River. Okay, interesting. So we're kind of like, we are bearing the consequences of that, right? In terms of like the leniency of that zoning code. Exactly. Yeah. Because, well, is it, so when it was rezoned for a campground, did that make it like highway commercial? It turned it into C3, which nowadays right. is called it's highway, highway commercial. commercial. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. It's, um yeah, and I should say in terms of residential development, it's from what I could tell by far the county's most lenient zone. It allows to up to 18 residential units per acre. The next highest zone, I think, allows only like eight or something like that. So it's quite a bit higher than any other zone. Interesting. Okay. Um, All right. The saga continues. I'm sure we'll have more reporting about this next week or in the coming weeks. But what else happened in Moab this week that you want to talk about? Yeah, a little PSA for everybody. Um, The air service at Canyonlands Regional Airport uh, shifted on February 1st. The airport is now offering daily commercial flights to Phoenix and then twice weekly flights to Salt Lake City through Redtail Air. But there is no longer a connection to Denver and you can no longer connect straight into Salt Lake City's international uh, airport, the main terminal there. Right. So the new new flights are to Phoenix daily. And then we've had the red tail flights to Salt Lake for a couple of months, right? Yep. Okay. Exactly. Do you know how much the tickets are to Phoenix? Yeah, to Phoenix, they look to be about $100, $115 over the next month or two. It's through Contour Airlines. You can book them online at Contour's website nice. as well. And I think I read that they are thinking about even increasing the frequency of flights to Phoenix in the future, potentially. Yeah, so the airport's going to do what it's done in previous years, where it starts ramping up flights as we enter tourist season. So March 28th, I believe, end of March, the daily flights will start increasing to two or even three times a day to and from Phoenix. Wow. 
how do you know how big the planes are? I believe they're thirty seat uh, planes, so similar to, if not identical to, what uh, we were getting to Denver and Salt Lake before. Okay, yeah. um, cool. This yeah. was also a big saga for a long time, so I'm glad they sorted, <laughs> sorted it out. Um, do you have any other stories you want to share with us from this week? Yeah, I'd love to point out, you know, the last story from Gwen Dilworth, our departing um, reporter. She did a deep dive into the local off-road community. Yeah, the trail closures have been a big topic this year. There were a lot of trails closed down Labyrinth Canyon, especially. Um, what are people in the OHV community saying about these trail closures? It sounds like uh, for a lot of members, you know, interviewed um, for this article, there's a sense that the uh, off-road community is trying to kind of rally together. It sounds like more folks are getting involved in advocacy and aligning with organizations such as the Blue Ribbon Coalition to, you know, fight trail closures or at least get more involved in the conversation. So, you know, it sounds like these public uh, lands regulations are changing the face of the OHV community as well. Hmm. That's really interesting because I, at least in my understanding, a lot of these trail closures, sure, it'll close hundreds of miles of trails, but there are still like thousands of miles of trails sort of across the state and in this region. So is this more of like people are upset on principle or is this like actually affecting their hobby and their recreation? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it depends on who you ask to a degree. But one thing that I think really stuck out to me about this article is sort of almost the like psychological impact of not just this closure, but this closure as the latest in a series of closures. Um, you know, some one person who was interviewed for the story said that, you know, every time every time something happens, we lose and we never gain. And that's why this last round has been so hard. So it's almost, you know, it's it almost makes more sense to look at this in the in the broader context of the last decade or two and other closures that have occurred rather than just this like singular thing. Um, you know, and what that does to a recreation community to always feel like there's a loss or, or things are being closed down to them rather than being opened up, I think is interesting. Yeah. Um, any other updates you want to give us from this week? Yeah, um, my last story that I'd love to highlight this week was about the uh, Old Spanish Trail, which runs through Moab and is uh, about to get new interpretive signage and infrastructure. Cool. Yeah, so if you're driving north out of town, maybe you've seen the people on donkeys, the little like wrought iron statues, um, mm -hmm. a little homage to the Old Spanish Trail. But um, yeah, what can you tell us about what's going in? Yeah. Yeah. So there are these new silhouettes put up in a few locations north of town, but we're about to get more interpretive signage and some more official parking areas and, and probably a couple of like little walking, hiking trails, um, mainly south of town in Dry Valley, which is, you know, how folks from the trail heading north uh, entered, you know, the Moab area. So at Looking Glass Rock uh, and a few other locations down there, there's going to be signage put in and parking, which is being spearheaded uh, by the Backcountry Horsemen of Utah, the, the local chapter, as well as the Bureau of Land Management. Um, and they're also putting in some interp up north. So at both the Cisco and the Westwater boat ramps, really interestingly, and then some places closer to the book cliffs and Green River as well. Okay, cool. So Dry Valley, what was the route? Would they come through Indian Creek and up to Moab or... Yeah, not Indian Creek, actually. And this was really interesting for me. So the overall route was from Santa Fe to Los Angeles mm -hmm. to trade textiles, essentially textiles for mules and horses. Um, and the route that, you know, folks ended up deciding on came up from Santa Fe, uh, entered San Juan County through East Canyon. So came over from Colorado 
Uh, it came up to Casa Colorado Rock, Looking Glass Rock, and then Hole in the Rock, which was not called that at the time, came up um, into the Moab Valley, passed through Old City Park because there were some historic springs there that were really useful for traders, and then crossed the Colorado River at Moab. And that's really the reason Moab was right on this route is because of our relatively gentle Colorado River crossing. And then they'd go north, go, you know, hook west through Green River and the San Rafael Swell, and then eventually hook back south again to head down to Las Vegas and Los Angeles. Did you get any um, historical context about what people were trading in Moab or like what, what goods were coming in and out of Moab? Yeah, so um, overall, the, the trading was really happening either in Santa Fe or in Los Angeles. Um, and generally, folks would bring really, you know, beautiful, highly manufactured textu- textiles from Santa Fe, bring those to Los Angeles, trade those for mules or horses. There were Spanish horses there that were highly sought after, bring those back to Santa Fe. And actually, a lot of the time, those goods from Santa Fe would get traded um, over to St. Louis in Missouri. And actually, this old Spanish trail was kind of the final link in this transcontinental trade route that happened way before the transcontinental railroad, before the Oregon Trail. So it was pretty early on. Um, and I should mention that there's also a, a dark history certainly associated with the old Spanish trail. Um, first of all, of course, it, it utilized historic indigenous routes, like no question about it. But it also facilitated the slave trade of indigenous people by, you know, Spanish or European traders. You know, people were captured along, along this route and then uh, sold into slavery. So there's a very dark aspect to it all. And I should say that, you know, local tribes are being consulted on this interpretive signage, which is a really important part of the process. Yeah. Do you know what? time period that slave trade was happening? Yeah, at least, well, I know the time period of the trail was the 1830s and 40s primarily. Okay. I'm still not understanding the geography of this. If you're trying to go from Santa Fe to Los Angeles, why would you go north to Moab first? Great question, Emily. (laughs) So actually, this route was like the second or third one that people landed on. The first one, I hate that I know so much about this. (laughs) The first one that people pursued was actually a much more southerly route, and it traversed essentially what's now the Utah-Arizona border. However, to do that, you essentially had to cross the Grand Canyon. Oh, so true. And also, um, the indigenous tribes around there were not really jazzed about people intruding on their land, so they were fairly hostile to the traders. So for those two reasons, people then sought a more northerly route. Got it. That makes sense. (laughs) Sophia Fisher, reporter with The Times Independent. Find more stories at moabtimes.com. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes on our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News Podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.